By wisdom, we received Eden's blessings, and God established the universe. Therefore, seek wisdom. It's only the splendor of my Good morning. Uh, for those whom I haven't met, my name is Christopher. My wife, Iris, and our three-month-old daughter, Lily, are sitting in the back. We bring you greetings from Tianshan Baptist Church, um, and we're delighted to join you this morning to worship our wise God. It's my honor to bring you God's word this morning. When I was 10 years old, my mom gave me a treasure map. Now, this wasn't some fake souvenir from a gift shop uh, or an old map that led to treasure that didn't exist or had long been found. No, she gave me a real treasure map that led to real treasure. This treasure map was a book by Michael Stradford called A Treasure's Trove. A Treasure's Trove was an illustrated children's novel, and hidden within its pages were riddles and clues that led to 12 treasures. Stadther had personally hidden 12 coins throughout the continental United States, and if you followed the clues and managed to find one of these coins, you would win an elaborate, unique, insect-shaped jewel. The combined value of the 12 jewels was over $1 million. As a treasure-loving 10-year-old who considered himself a pretty good problem solver, I dove into the challenge with passion and gusto. I remember carefully scanning the pages for any hints of what I thought could be a clue that led to one of the treasures. A treasure's trove, however, sold over 600,000 copies. And so, needless to say, I had a fair amount of competition. People spent months working on the riddles and traveled hundreds of miles to search for the coins. It had become a national treasure hunt. A treasure hunt has a unique way of exposing our heart, doesn't it? Showing what you really value. So much time, energy, effort, putting to one goal, obtaining something of great worth, being the first to find the treasure. When was the last time that you went on a treasure hunt. Now, I don't mean a literal treasure hunt, but the last time that you spent a significant amount of time and effort trying to get something that you value. What did you learn about what you treasure? What does your heart greatly value? Perhaps a better question for us this morning is, what should we treasure? What does God say that we should greatly value? Our passage for this morning, Proverbs chapter 3, is a chapter that proclaims the exceeding value of wisdom. And so that is what I want us to consider together this morning. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles with me to Proverbs chapter 3. But before we read it, I want to give some extended context on the role of Proverbs in the Old Testament and in the life of the nation of Israel. So in the beginning, God created Adam and Eve and placed them in an abundant and prosperous land, the Garden of Eden. They were to live as God's people, in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying God's presence and blessings. But because they sinned, they were exiled from the Garden, and God's presence 
and the tree of life. Fast forward hundreds of years, God chose Abraham and his descendants, the nation of Israel, to be his covenant people. God promised them an abundant and prosperous land in which they were to live as God's people, in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying God's presence and blessings, almost like a new Garden of Eden. But as we know, starting from the Exodus through the period of the judges and the reign of their first king, Israel was consistently rebellious against God. Up to this point in Israel's life, the promised land looked nothing like Eden. But finally, Israel got a king who was after God's own heart, David. David's reign brought stability and prosperity to Israel. And though it ultimately ended in tragedy because of his sin of adultery, Israel would continue to increase in prosperity under his son Solomon. In the first part of Solomon's reign, Israel experienced blessing that culminated in Solomon completing the construction of the temple, God's permanent presence among his people. And Solomon's wisdom was renowned throughout the ancient world. And so it was this king, at the height of Israel's prosperity, who wrote Proverbs to instruct God's people how to practically live godly lives in God's place, under God's rule, to enjoy God's presence and blessings, almost like they were back in the Garden of Eden. So with that purpose in mind, let's look together at Proverbs 3. We'll be looking at verses 13 to 26. Proverbs 3, starting in verse 13. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom, and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her, and those who hold her fast are called blessed. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth, by understanding he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open, and the clouds dropped down the dew. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. So in this passage, Solomon is showing us the exceeding value of wisdom. How exactly does he do that? What's the main point of this passage? Well, here's how I would say it. By wisdom, we receive Eden's blessings, and God established the universe. Therefore, seek wisdom. By wisdom, we receive Eden's blessings, 
and God established the universe. Therefore, seek wisdom. I want to look at each part of the main point one by one. So if you're a note taker, this is my outline for this morning. So point one, by wisdom, we receive Eden's blessings. Point two, by wisdom, God established the universe. Point three, therefore, seek wisdom. By wisdom, we receive Eden's blessings, verses 13 and 18. By wisdom, God established the universe, verses 19 and 20. Therefore, seek wisdom, verses 21 to 26. So let's start by considering verses 13 to 18. By wisdom, we receive Eden's blessings. We all desire blessings like joy, pleasure, peaceful relationships, rest. These are actually just some of the blessings that Adam and Eve experienced in Eden. When we long for these blessings, it's as if we're longing to go back to humanity's first home. The world says that it's through worldly success, sin, selfishness, that we obtain these blessings. But in our passage today, Solomon is trying to convince convince us that wisdom is the true path to these blessings, and that wisdom is valuable, valuable because it will lead us to the ultimate blessing of life, Eden-like fellowship with God. But what is wisdom? How is wisdom defined in Proverbs? Well, the world's definition of wisdom says that a wise businessman is someone who knows how to make a good deal, or a wise doctor is someone who has skill at diagnosing an illness and prescribing a treatment. But wisdom in Proverbs has a different foundation than the world's wisdom, because as Proverbs 9.10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. See, wisdom is fundamentally God-oriented, inseparable from his law, his word, and our relationship with him. There are, many, there are many sayings in Proverbs that have to do with normal everyday life, but even these are written so that Israel could live godly lives in the promised land. The ESV Study Bible offers, offers us an excellent definition of wisdom. It says that wisdom is the skill in the art of godly living. Wisdom is skill in the art of godly living. Let's look again at our passage. Wisdom is the skill of living as God's people according to God's word. And this skill is so valuable that in verse 13, Solomon says that blessed, blessed is the one who finds wisdom. And then he proceeds to illustrate to his readers the fullness of wisdom's blessing. He starts by comparing wisdom to the most valuable things in this world in verses 14 and 15. He almost sounds like a stockbroker trying to sell an investment to you. This investment is better than the returns on silver or gold, stocks or bonds. It's even better than if you had bought an apartment in Shanghai in the 1990s. This is the best investment that's ever existed in the history of humanity. Really? It sounds a little too good to be true, doesn't it? What are the returns on wisdom? What are its rewards? Let's hear what Solomon has to say. Look down at verse 16 with me. Solomon proclaims that wisdom gives long life, riches, honor. Verse 17, that her ways are pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. Here we get our first hints of Eden. See, before the fall, 
Adam and Eve possessed long life, eternal life. God gave them dominion over all of creation. They owned everything. No one has ever been so wealthy. They had perfect fellowship with God, made in his image, the most honored of all created things. Not only that, but they had peace with God. They were naked and unashamed in his presence. They had no sin or strife. They could walk with God on a garden path in the cool of the day in peace. It's as if Solomon is taking us on a walk through the Garden of Wisdom. He's pointing out different beautiful plants and trees along the path, and then by the time we get close to the middle of the garden, we'll probably have started to feel a nagging sense of familiarity, or hopefully even longing. And now, finally, Solomon reveals to us what this garden has been modeled after when we arrive at a tree of life in the midst of the garden. Verse 18, wisdom is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. This is the first time the phrase tree of life occurs in the Bible since Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden. Solomon is telling us that those who lay hold of wisdom, it's like they're holding, laying hold of a tree that can give them the blessings of Eden. Now, I want to be clear. Living wise, godly lives did not earn Old Testament Israelites salvation, and neither can it earn us salvation. God chose, saved, and covenanted with Israel before this passage was ever written, and in the same way, we are saved by faith alone and Christ alone. Living wise lives cannot earn our salvation. But increasingly wise and godly lives are a necessary result of salvation. Though wisdom does not earn salvation, there is a real difference between a Christian choosing to live in wisdom or to live in foolishness. To live wisely brings close, Eden-like fellowship with God, and living foolishly misses out on this treasure. Solomon is holding up wisdom and trying to convince us of its value, that it's worth pursuing. Find wisdom. Lay hold of the skill of godly living and receive the blessings of Eden. Remember, wisdom is fundamentally God-oriented, founded on the fear of God. So Christian, the more you grow in God's wisdom, the closer you will walk with him. We are presented with a choice multiple times every day. Wisely live in the fear of God and his word or foolishly choose sin and disobedience. Do your everyday decisions show that you value God's wisdom? Is there something in this world that you desire more than skill and godly living? If Solomon was writing verses 14 and 15 to you personally, instead of silver, gold, and jewels, what may, have, what may he have included to convince you of wisdom's value? Maybe the gain from wisdom is better than the gain from a stable job, and her profit is better than a full night of sleep. Or maybe she is more precious than a healthy body, and nothing you desire can compare with her. During lunch today, I encourage you to share with each other what things in this world, even the good things, you are personally tempted to value over wisdom. Wisdom is so valuable because it helps us live in fellowship with God, according to his word. Having skill in godly living keeps us away from sin. 
Every sin tears away at our practical everyday fellowship with God. It only took one sin for Adam and Eve to be exiled from the garden. So pursue wisdom, skill, and godliness so that you may know God more. I love being a new dad. It's such a joy to care for and play with our daughter. Like most three-month-olds, Lily spends a lot of her playtime looking around at the world around her. Her eyes wide open with curiosity. She particularly loves our dresser and our bookshelf. But you know what my favorite part of playtime is? It's when I get her to stop looking at the bookshelf and make eye contact with me. It normally only takes a second or two for that wide-eyed look of curiosity to transform into the world's cutest smile. See, Christian, our Heavenly Father loves it when we stop looking around at the world around us, even the good things, and instead focus on and delight in Him. The ultimate value, the treasure of wisdom, is that it gives us more of God. So value wisdom exceedingly, because by it we receive Eden's blessings, namely joyful fellowship with our Father. Let's move on to our second point. By wisdom, God established the universe. In his quest to make wisdom look attractive, Solomon doesn't stop at Eden's blessings, but continues, off, continues on with wisdom's role in the very creation of the universe. Look with me at verses 19 and 20. Verse 19. The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open, and the clouds dropped down the dew. Wisdom, wisdom is an attribute of God, part of his character, and one reason it is valuable to him is because with it, he designed the universe. The ground we stand on, the oxygen we breathe, the cells that make up our body, the stars we gaze at in amazement have all been engineered by our creator in his wisdom. Not only that, but he continues to sustain the heavens and the earth by his wisdom. The currents of the ocean, the rain that waters the plants and trees, the gravity that keeps our feet solidly on the ground, the subatomic forces that hold the atoms together, all according to God's wisdom. We do not have full access to God's wisdom in all its infiniteness, but we are able to truly learn and live according to God's wisdom. Having access to the Creator's wisdom, the very wisdom that He used to design the whole universe, to live our small daily lives, seems a little crazy, almost a little overpowered. Um, Betty Leadham, she grew up in Princeton in New Jersey in the 1940s. One day when she was 12 years old, she was walking home from school, she saw an old man sitting on the bench. She decided to stop and say hi, they started a conversation, and Betty told him that she was doing terrible in her math homework and really needed help. He offered to help her, and so began their tutoring sessions, where Betty got daily help on her middle school math homework from Albert Einstein. <laughs> Using the Creator's wisdom to live our little lives is like getting help on our middle school math homework from Einstein. What an incredible resource and opportunity, and how foolish we would be to pass that up. So how do we find out how God designed the world to work? Well, a couple months ago, I bought a couple lights from Ikea, and I wasted about 10 minutes putting them together the wrong way before I finally decided to look at the instructions. Just like Ikea furniture comes with assembly instructions, our designer gives a book with instructions and principles 
that he wants us to actually read and apply. The whole Bible contains God's commands on how we are to live according to his design. In the book of Proverbs, specifically, it tells us how to live according to God's word with skill. So spend time reading God's word, seeking your instructions for life from your designer. And spend time specifically reading Proverbs, meditating on it, discussing it with other church members so that you can grow in the practical skill of godly living. We live in a sinful world that is opposed to God. Proverbs 1 warns us that, uh, about hanging out with sinful fools, being influenced by them and tempted into sin. If we allow our minds to be primarily filled with the ideas and standards of this world, then we'll be swayed toward their ways, their sin, their low standards of morality. Instead, we must strive to fill our minds with God's word so that our default way of thinking is God's way, not the world's. This is hard to do, so we need each other's help with this. WSBC, as a local church, you're like a little outpost of Eden. You are God's covenant people in God's presence, living under God's rule. God's word is spoken and sung every Sunday in the hymns, prayers, preaching, and scripture readings. So as you fellowship and encourage other church members throughout the week, let that word fill your speech to each other, almost like it's echoing back and forth between God's people. Help each other to resist the serpent's tempting lies by speaking the truths of God's promises to each other. God often gives different people in the church different gifts of godly wisdom. When you need advice or are struggling to make a difficult decision, don't mainly go to the world's wisdom. Instead, rely on your fellow church members to help you follow Jesus more. So WSBC, seek wisdom together. That brings us to our third point. Therefore, seek wisdom. That's really what our whole passage is about, but in verses 21 to 26, Solomon specifically exhorts his son to seek wisdom. Verse 21, keep sound wisdom and discretion. Verse 22, it is life-giving. Verse 23, it will keep him from stumbling into sin. Verses 24 to 26, it gives rest. Solomon's first audience was to his son, the future king of Israel, because if the king rules wisely according to God's word, then the people of Israel will prosper. These are instructions from the wisest person to ever live up to this point. But notice something. Solomon himself did not live up to his own teaching. He had a good start as his, to his reign as king, but his own foot stumbled when he abandoned wisdom and obedience. He disobeyed God by marrying wives from the surrounding idolatrous nations, and he himself was led away into the sin of idolatry. God had promised David that one of his descendants would rule the kingdom forever, and yet Solomon, David's son, sinned and eventually died. And Solomon's sons sinned and died. And so did all of Israel's kings after them. If Solomon, the author of Proverbs himself, was unable to live a life full of perfect wisdom, then who could? This passage and the whole book of Proverbs leaves us with this tension, 
crying out to be solved. Who is the king who would finally seek perfect wisdom and keep it? Who will be David's heir, Abraham's offspring, the seed of the woman, the promised Messiah? It is, of course, Jesus of Nazareth. He is the fulfillment of this passage, its anticipated wise king. Jesus is the greater Solomon, the one who perfectly sought and kept wisdom. Let's consider together how Jesus fulfilled Solomon's exhortation to his son, the future king, verses 21 to 26. Look at Solomon's command in the second half of verse 21. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. Solomon himself and every other king after him failed to keep this command at some point. But Luke 2 tells us that even as a child, Jesus was filled with and continued to increase in wisdom. When Jesus was 12, he taught the people in the temple, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. In his human nature, Jesus sought and grew in wisdom. He attained wisdom. He kept it perfectly, fulfilling Solomon's command to his son. Look at verse 22. And they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. No person's soul has ever been so alive as Jesus's because he never sinned and he had perfect fellowship with God. This wisdom and life were not merely internal, but they adorned him externally. His words and actions gave life to others. His unjust trial, no one could find any fault in him. Look at verse 23. Then you will walk on your way securely and your foot will not stumble. Jesus perfectly resisted temptation, and his face was set on the path that the Father laid out for him, even to the cross. Verse 24, If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. In his wisdom, Jesus trusted God and his plan so much that he was able to sleep in a boat through a storm that his disciples feared for their lives in. Verse 25, do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes. Jesus knew that though he would bear the cross, he would not be judged with the wicked eternally, but that God would vindicate him. And what is the root reason for all this walking, this resting, this lack of fear? Verse 26, For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. No one has ever trusted his heavenly Father more than Jesus. He sought and obtained perfect wisdom, and therefore he was confident in his Father and his plan, even as it led to the cross. So what does this mean for us? Well, Jesus was the first person to walk perfectly in wisdom and be completely victorious over sin, and then he lets us, his people, share in that victory. His salvation not only frees his people from sin's penalty, but also its power. And so we now have the ability to obey this passage and to seek wisdom. There are two specific exhortations from this passage that I want to consider together. Walk and rest. First, walk. Walk in Christ's wisdom. Seek to walk with Christ in godliness with skill. Verse 22 says that if you keep wisdom, then you will walk on your way securely and your foot will not stumble. Remember that treasure hunt I told you about earlier? 
Uh, about six months after the book was published, 11 out of the 12 coins had been found. There was only one riddle left to solve. There were hundreds or even thousands of people racing to be the first one to solve it. One day in July 2005, treasure hunter David Somers finally cracked the last riddle. He finally knew where the coin was hidden. The very next morning, he boarded three separate flights and then drove over seven hours to finally arrive at Badlands National Park in South Dakota around midnight, 1,800 miles away from his home. He and his friend wasted no time. Immediately, they started looking for the coin equipped with their treasure map and some flashlights. At around 1 a.m., at the exact location that the book said, in the very tree that the book illustrated, they finally found the coin. They later redeemed it for a beetle-shaped jewel worth over $50,000. The little $20 children's book led them to a treasure worth $50,000. Wisdom, like the children's book, is valuable not because it's the treasure itself, but because it's the map. The map of wisdom is valuable because it leads us to the treasure of Jesus. Just like treasure hunters spend hours or even days poring over a treasure map, so we should dive deeply into God's word in order to know Jesus more. Just how treasure hunters travel great distances, overcome great obstacles to claim their prize, so we should go to great lengths, make great sacrifices to follow wisdom, to have more of Jesus. Treasure hunters fight off distractions because they are following the map with their eyes set on the prize. And so should we. This world offers us so many other ways to seek joy. Tell a small lie there and you'll get a good job review. Date a non-Christian and you'll finally get to enjoy marriage. Take a lustful glance. It's not going to hurt anyone. But Christian, missing out on this world's treasures in order to have Jesus is worth it. To live like this is to go upstream against the current of culture, and they will call our wisdom foolishness. So keep your eyes on the prize. Follow the map of wisdom. Proverbs chapter 5, don't even go near the house of the adulterous woman. Chapter 6, be diligent, not lazy. Chapter 11, verse 28, don't trust in riches. Chapter 15, verse 32, listen to good instruction, accept Reproof. Chapter 16, verse 6. By the fear of the Lord, turn away from evil. See, no one just stumbles upon wisdom or accidentally becomes godly. We must work at it, strive to walk in wisdom by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. Is there an area of your life that you're careless about pursuing godliness in? Maybe you aren't clearly sinning, but you're flirting with sin maybe walking foolishly close to the edge. Wake up, fight, by trusting God that his wisdom is the right way to the treasure and that his treasure is better. So Christian, walk in Christ's wisdom. Pray for God to give you more wisdom. Read Proverbs to learn wisdom so that you may have courage to walk righteously, even in hard times, and to not be enticed by sin. Wisdom's reward is joyful fellowship with our Heavenly Father, and it is worth it. Next, rest. In wisdom, 
rest in God and his salvation. Verse 24 says that we can rest. Verse 25 says that we will not fear the judgment and the ruin that the wicked will face. Why? Because look at verse 26. The Lord will be your confidence. Wisdom causes the Christian to not fear God's judgment, but instead to rest in the sturdy salvation that God provides. Our sin against God, the holy God is unimaginably great. And left to, depend on, left to depend on ourselves, we should be terrified of judgment. But God's salvation is greater than our sin, and his salvation is sure and it's steady. And so we can rely on it. Christian, because our confidence and salvation is in God and not ourselves, we can rest. If you're not a Christian, I'm so glad that you're here today. Let me ask you, what or who do you put your confidence in? Have you thought about how God is going to deal with your sin? Maybe you hope that your good works will outweigh your sin. Well, the Bible says that God is perfectly holy and he hates sin. Even sinning once is enough for God to justly condemn you to suffer in hell forever. No amount of good works can cancel your sin. Your only hope to escape that punishment is for someone else to take the punishment for you. On the cross, Jesus took the punishment for sin for everyone who would ever trust him. And after dying on the cross, three days later, he rose from the dead, defeating death and giving life to all his people. He offers to trade his perfect sinless life for your sinful life. All you have to do to accept this free gift is to turn away from your sins and trust in him for salvation. If you have any questions about what that means for you personally, I would love to talk with you afterwards. Or you can talk to anyone around you, or maybe the person that invited you. For those who are already trusting in Jesus, if you are walking in wisdom, though falteringly, if you are seeking to fight sin and grow in godliness, though imperfectly, you can have confidence that you belong to Jesus, and that his death and resurrection are sufficient for your salvation. You don't have to keep striving in order to be right with God, but you can rest in Christ. Just as we read, heard read 1 Corinthians earlier, the cross, a dying Savior, is foolishness to this world. But in God's wisdom, it is the sure and steady means of our salvation. So though your sin is great, trust that his salvation is greater. And Christian, if, you, if God was able and willing to deal with your greatest problem, your sin, then how much more is he able and willing to provide for you and care for you in the trials and troubles of this life? Part of growing in wisdom is growing to see things as they really are, to truly believe that reality is what God says it is. So pray that God would give you more wisdom and a clearer vision of him, that he really is on the throne of the universe. He not only wants what is best for you, but he knows exactly what that is, and he is able to do it. Maybe you're facing trials because you're a Christian, or maybe your body is breaking down, or maybe loneliness seems overwhelming, or you're suffering under the weight of a broken family or relationships, or being crushed by anxiety about the future. See, Jesus is not just some far-off ruler who is unable to empathize with us. He chose to take on 
our humanity, to experience our limitations and temptations, our suffering and our pain. Satan offered Jesus a throne that did not require a cross, but Jesus chose to trust his Father instead. The night before his crucifixion, Jesus was filled with sorrow because of the approaching cross, but in trust, he endured its suffering and death. If Jesus considered our Heavenly Father trustworthy, so can we. Every time that we trust God, not ourselves, especially in the hardest circumstances, we reflect Jesus and show how trustworthy our Father is to a watching world. Wisdom says to trust God, not to lean on your own understanding. Wisdom tells you to fear God more than you fear the future. Wisdom reminds you that your loving Heavenly Father is in control, and there's no need to take things into your own hands. And wisdom beckons you to take her hand and to rest in God and his salvation. And he will take care of the rest. We should conclude. A curious thing about wisdom is that though it can give us many of Eden's glorious blessings, it cannot return us to Eden itself. This passage makes us long for the tree of life, and yet we must look elsewhere if we're to gain full access to it. See, wisdom points us to Eden, but it cannot let us enter, because by itself, it has no way of dealing with our sin. Do you remember what guarded Eden when Adam and Eve were exiled? A cherubim. An angel with a flaming sword placed at the entrance to guard uh, the entrance of the garden to guard the tree of life. If any sinner attempted to re-enter Eden to eat of the tree of life, they would be killed by the flaming sword. Like Eden, the Old Testament temple was a place where God's presence specially dwelt. Images of cherubim were woven into the veil that separated the most holy place from the rest of the temple. And so like At Eden, in the temple, cherubim guarded and separated sinful men from the holy God. But what happened to the curtain? What happened to the curtain in the temple when Jesus died on the cross? It was torn in two. It tore because by his death, Jesus gave sinners access to the presence of God again. It's as if the cherubim's flaming sword that guarded Eden fell Unto Jesus. He took the judgment that was necessary to allow sinners to re enter the garden, to be given access again to the tree of life. How mysterious! The Savior, by hanging on a tree of death, the Savior, by hanging on a tree of death, gives us access to the tree of life. And unlike all of Israel's past kings, Jesus didn't stay dead. Through his resurrection, he did another thing that wisdom could not. He started the redemption of all creation. Wisdom is an attribute of God used in creation, but by itself it has no ability to redeem creation from sin. But Jesus, in his resurrection, started the new creation. And now we look forward to the day that he will complete it. And so turn with me. Turn with me to Revelation 22. Revelation 22. Here, John describes the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, where God's presence will dwell. 
almost like it's a new Eden. Look with me at Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 to 5. Starting in verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. See, finally, sin, death, suffering will be just a memory, and we will receive full, unhindered access to the tree of life, eternal life in the new Eden. And yet, and yet, the tree itself is not the treasure of the new creation. Look at our closing hymn with me. The sands of time are sinking. The sands of time are sinking. The final verse. The bride eyes not her garments, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel Lamb. As we take the Lord's Supper together in a few moments, remember in gratitude the past cost of our salvation and look forward in hope to the future meal that is promised to us. For we will soon gather with our Savior in the new creation at the marriage supper of the Lamb where we will finally see his face. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the wisdom that you've given us in your word. And more than that, we thank and praise you for sending your son for us, and for our salvation. Give us more of your wisdom so that we can follow, know, and honor Jesus more. And in wisdom, help us to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ, when we will finally see him face to face. And it's in him, his name we pray.